This is the Door History Podcast and my name is Naomi Clifford. Here at the door we like to push the door, open the door, unlock the door but our aim is to cast some light on hitherto unknown stories of women. Just try and balance things up a little bit. They might not be famous women but I think you'll be interested in hearing about them. We're going to kick off with that rare thing, a 17th century feminist poet. Her name was Sarah Feig Egerton, born Sarah Feig in London in 1672. She published her first major poem at the age of 14. It was called The Female Advocate and it was written in response to a poem written by a man, Robert Gould, and the title of that was Love Given Her or a Satire on the Inconstancy of Woman. Uh, she was pretty outspoken, as you can imagine, and that got her into quite a lot of trouble with her own father who chucked her out of home. She uh, was married first, I don't know what the name of her first husband was, but her second was called Thomas Egerton. Now, at some point, I actually don't know the year this was written, but she wrote The Emulation, and that really is about the state that women are kept in, which is, amounts to a sort of form of slavery. She saw marriage as a form of slavery. She felt that women would overcome uh, this situation through education, and of course that did happen. It just took quite a few centuries, and the work is not finished. So here it is, uh, the emulation. I should, before we start, I should say that the Pentateuch is the first five uh, books of the Old Testament Bible, Genesis, Exodus, etc. Anyway, here we go, the the emulation. Say, tyrant custom, why must we obey? the impositions of thy haughty sway. From the first dawn of life unto the grave, poor womankind's in every state a slave. The nurse, the mistress, parent, and the swain, for love she must, there's none escape that pain. Then comes the last, the fatal slavery. The husband with insulting tyranny can have ill manners justified by law, for men all join to keep the wife in awe. Moses, who first our freedom did rebuke, was married when he writ the Pentateuch. They're wise to keep us slaves, for well they know, if we were loose, we soon would make them so. We yield like vanquished kings, whom fetters bind, when chance of war is to usurpers kind, submit in form, but there'd our thoughts control, and lay restraints on the impassive soul. They fear we should excel their sluggish parts, should we attempt the science and the arts, pretend they were designed for them alone, so keep us fools to raise their own renown. Thus priests of old, their grandeur to maintain, cried vulgar eyes, would sacred laws profane. So kept the mysteries behind a screen, their homage and the name were lost had they been seen. But in this blessed age, such freedom's given that every man explains the will of heaven. 
And shall we women now sit tamely by, make no excursions in philosophy, or grace our thoughts in tuneful poetry? We will our rights in learning's world maintain, which empire now shall know a female reign. Come, all ye fair, the great attempt improve, divinely imitate the realms above. There's ten celestial females govern wit, and but two gods that dare pretend to it. And shall these finite males reverse their rules? No, we'll be wits, and then men must be fools. The Emulation was read by Rolly Okorodudu. I'm here with Sharon Wright, who's written a fantastic biography of Mariah Bronte. Actually, the first biography of Mariah for 200 years. Um, and this year is part of the five year, of the amazing five year bi bicentenary of the Brontes, um, which ends, when does it end, Sharon? Well, it ends next year with Anne Bronte's bicentenary year, mm -hmm. which will be 2020. Mm -hmm. 200 years since she was born. Began with Charlotte, um, in 2016, then Branwell, year after, last year was Emily, this year's Patrick Bronte's year, and next year's Anne's. So the missing Bronte from all that, of course, was Mrs Bronte. Yes, yes, and hopefully your book will put that put that straight, put that right, because, yes. um, as you say in your book, there is this lack of information out there about Mariah, although it was sitting there for centuries, and... Um, You've done a fantastic research job to um, bring it all together in, in your book. Thank you. Um, I thought we'd start with some uh, just a description of Mariah's life and where she started out from and just a bit about, about Mariah herself. So Mariah was born into a wealthy merchant family in Penzance in 1783 at the height of the Georgian era. She was part of a large family, a very prominent family. Her brother went on to be the mayor, her father was... Um, a well-to-do merchant and part of the Penzance Corporation. So they were, they were, they were the gentlemen. gentlemen. Yeah. They, they were, were referred gentry. to as gentlemen okay. in the records. Yeah. Um, so of course she was well educated. She had a nice house in the most fashionable street in town. She was a contemporary of Jane Austen. She would have gone with her sister to the assembly rooms in Chapel Street where she lived. And when her, when her parents died she lived alone with her mother, and then when she died, just her sisters, and referred to herself in letters as perfectly her own mistress. So she was very independent, mm -hmm. well-educated, well-read, plugged-in young woman of Penzance, which itself was a very bustling um, cosmopolitan place, of course, there were redcoats going to and from the French wars, there was trade coming through. It was a very, very interesting place mm -hmm. to grow up. Mm -hmm. Um, and she got to the age of 29, not having married. Yes. Um, and then circumstances brought her up to Yorkshire. Yes. She was from a very... The, her family were leading um, Wesleyans, and through a series of, of Wesleyan connections and events, she ended up going to Yorkshire to help her aunt and uncle, who set up um, a Wesleyan boarding school there, mm -hmm. Sons of Itinerant Preachers. So she travelled 400 miles by herself, past highwaymen and all the many things that could happen it's in there. It's astonishing really, isn't oh, it? Oh it is, yeah. I mean, I found lots of scary stories that she <laughs> would you have... think that a lot of women were not even allowed to travel in there? Oh, exactly. 
<coughs> she was quite, she had a lot of gumption, did Maria mm. Branwell. So she went in her head going on a working holiday and would never return, which you can see through all her letters and the rest of her life was a great sadness to her. She was always very homesick. Mm. But once there, she met Patrick Bronte at the school. He was a visiting examiner and it was absolutely a passionate love at first sight, mm. whirlwind romance, and they were married by the end of 1812. So, so we met about... April to June, mm -hmm. they were married end of December. And they, they went through a very sweet ceremony, a double... Triple. Triple yes. marriage ceremony. They had a there is, I think, there's a touch of the bridezilla in those, <laughs> some of those letters. Because when she loses her rag and you realise that actually she's writing love letters to Patrick, yes. but she's also letters are flying between Penzance and Appley Bridge, the school. So to just, just describe this triple marriage yes. for us. So her cousin, Jane is marrying Patrick's best friend William. So Mariah and Patrick are getting married on the same day as Jane and William. They're going to be each other's bridesmaid and each other's minister because um, William and Patrick are both clergymen obviously. They go down the aisle together, they get yes. married. Meanwhile at the same hour and the same day down in Madron Church in Penzance, her little sister Charlotte is also getting married. So it's a triple Regency wedding yeah. and that's all done by letter. So no wonder she's a bit tense and something. <laughs> No, no WhatsApp to help them no, out. No, no WhatsApp, but yeah, I mean, her niece said later, you know, there might never have been another wedding like mm -hmm. it, certainly not at the no, time. Extraordinary. Yeah. Crazy. And in the book, I have, I asked Eleanor Broughton, who's um, the Bronte dress historian, to imagine their wedding outfits, which she has mm. done. Mm -hmm. And Yes, uh, I, that's a lovely picture. It is, it's yeah. absolutely, yes. it comes from Eleanor's expertise and gives you an idea of them on their wedding day, mm -hmm. walking to church. <laughs> Patrick was quite um, uh, quite someone to take on. I mean, the, the, in your book you talk about people describing his oddness. Yes. And, and how Mariah either didn't see that oddness or didn't mind it. And that makes me love her a little bit more, oh, actually. Absolutely. She saw through, it was always called peculiar, wasn't it? Yes. I mean, always people say, very good man, but a bit peculiar. And they also mm. called him Old Staff because he went everywhere with this big, I don't know how to say it, shillelagh. Yes, yeah, but the big sort of walking Irish staff. staff. Like St. Yes, Patrick, really. Yes. Walked everywhere. Yeah. He used to do 24 miles to see mm. her and back. Mm -hmm. Something his, their children really inherited. Yes, this ability to just stride about Always on, along the moors. Yeah. And she was very fit and healthy as well. And this idea of her, just because she was little and small, she was a little pixie, mm. like Charlotte Bronte, really. That she was somehow frail and she really wasn't. No, it was and only she, at the she end produced six healthy yeah. children, didn't she? No, with yeah. no losses. No. Um, yes, it was very poignant to read the, her end, which came at the age of 38. 38, yes. So in um, the end of January in 1821, she literally collapsed at the, at the parsonage in Haworth and it was just a hammer blow. The doctor came and said she had an internal cancer and she was going to die. So that took me into investigating and, and sort of reflecting on what kind of cancer she might have had with the knowledge we have now. And then um, I spoke to a doctor and I looked at the sort of the literature. And whereas she was supposed to have had uterine cancer, it seemed more likely to me that she had cervical cancer because there those you can be very advanced in cervical cancer mm. and suddenly the symptoms are manifest mm -hmm. but also just her profile and her risk factors would put her more at risk of cervical and uterine 
But of course, you know, cancer, we all know, don't mm. we, can chooses its victims at random often, we don't know. No. But she certainly was terminally ill mm. and she took seven months to die mm. in absolute That's agony. Been absolute agony. for everyone. Yeah. And poor Patrick nursed her through the night and was working through the day. The children were tiptoeing around, her sister came up to help her. The godmothers, their best friends, who I call the sort of Bradford blue stockings over mm -hmm. in Thornton, mm. who were quite well to do, and they'd mm -hmm. come over and help, and just awful. And when she did die, it was just heartbreaking, because she was only 38, and that evangelical outlook demanded, really, that you had an ecstatic death, that mm. you would so... You could see heaven, you were ready to step out of life into heaven and you were mm. ready for it. And But she wasn't. She was 38. She was leaving six little children and the love of her life and she wasn't ready to die. It was just very, very, very tragic. And, and, and she was full of potential herself. She was. And, you know, such a shame that we didn't get to know her later in life. No. And, but. and that's why, really, I think she fell from the record because the children were young. Yes, now this is very interesting. Yeah. You know, when you came to write the book, um, you were told that there really wasn't enough material to write a book on her. Yes. And this turned out not to be the case. No, I think it was received wisdom in lots of ways because there is so much written and known about the Bronte siblings and Patrick. Because Patrick, it's his year this year, and mm. he, he was an astonishing man and campaigner. He did a great deal in his life, aside from being the father of writers. Mm -hmm. So he was greatly loved and he his achievements were many, sort of social achievements and literary ones as well. But Mariah... I, when she I sort first of disappeared, yeah, I said, she? why has nobody ever written a biography yes. of Mariah, of the mother of the Brontes? And people just would shrug and say, oh, there's not enough on her. And I used to think... I bet there is. If you really go looking, I bet there is, and, and there is. And I feel well, like you've done I wonderful it. detective work to bring her out from the archives. Um, you know, just such fascinating areas, such as you know what she read and yeah. who her friends were, and how she got. You know how she physically got to Yorkshire, as we've briefly yeah. discussed. And um, it was such an odyssey, though. And I don't know if you feel this when you're writing your books, but I did. More than once felt like I'd bitten off more than I can chew, you know. From being told there's not enough to thinking, oh my goodness, there's so much and mm. I want to do it justice mm -hmm. and do it properly. Yes. And yeah, just feeling immersed in this extraordinary untold story. Mm -hmm. I wanted to go stomping around going, who thought there wasn't enough? <laughs> <laughs> Receive wisdom, yeah. One of, one of the things that really interested me in, well, the many things that interested me in, in your book was um, the reading list. Mariah Bronte, what Mariah Bronte read as a young woman in Penzance, you've compiled uh, this fantastic um, list of, of, of her reading material and obviously there was a lot of religious stuff in there um, and that sat very happily alongside um, the ladies magazine for instance. Um, tell, tell us a bit about the ladies magazine and, and what it did and, and and, uh, and what happened to those magazines? Yes, well, she and her sister, I mean, we know that Elizabeth and Mariah for sure, but I'm sure all the sisters would have passed around the ladies' magazine, which was wildly popular in its time, and it gave a voice to women writers, women opinion, female opinion. But a big part of that was the Gothic fiction that they would run. So Gothic fiction was huge in the, the very late 1700s mm -hmm. and, and going into the 1800s, when Mariah was a young woman. 
And much as I used to be agog to get my comics and my magazines when I was that age, she would read her ladies' magazine. And because they were quite well to do, theirs were bound, you know. You mm. could also get Penny Dreadful versions, I think, but they were called Scarlet Shockers or something like that. <laughs> but she read the, the full thing, and they're absolutely full of these stories of women in spooky old castles, ghastly shrieks in the night, you know, running oh, around. Fantastic. Everything yes. you think of as gothic, sort of really. trashy, trashy yes. novels, really. Yes. Yes. And the, the absolute stories and era that Jane Austen uh, sends up in Northanger Abbey. Yes, yes. Now that's really interesting when I draw parallels later yes. when that comes out and mm -hmm. Mariah's take. But those stories absolutely suffuse Bronte's work in a way in that, you know, Charlotte Bronte absolutely loved those magazines. She said she'd bunk off and read them. And she was in secret. In secret until Patrick Bronte found them and burnt them apparently. One black day, she says. And Charlotte Bronte references several of those stories in particular. So I went back and looked at those stories. I described them what happened and then sort of the interplay mm -hmm. between Mariah and Charlotte's mm -hmm. sensibilities really around that, that gothic well, theme. Well Jane Eyre itself has yes. got a very gothic oh, absolutely. theme. You know, Mad Woman in the Attic as you point out. Completely. And Ellen Nussie talks about the um how she'd absolutely terrify their friends at school with their mm -hmm. gothic stories. Oh, well. wow, that's a lovely picture, isn't yes. it? The young Charlotte. Yeah, frightening. Uh, entertaining day. her friends with horror stories. All yeah. these spellbound girls, yes. you know, listening. Yes. So there's there's all those threads. And of course, Emily Bronte, that, that sort of... Well, those liminal spaces. It's yes. absolutely nuts, isn't it? Absolutely. Really? And, and, and that, the living and the dead and mm, the spacey and mm -hmm. the habit. And also, there's a reading list of the, the Penzance Ladies Book Group, as I say, which is still in existence, actually, down at the Morab Library, and there, where there are handwritten lists of the books that they were reading and circulating, which Fantastic. is absolutely a Fantastic. treasure trove. Yeah. There was one lady called Mrs Treweek, who was an absolute game old bird by the sound of it. She had all these adventures, all these hilarious stories about, you know, when she... When a pig got loose in um, on market day, and she ended up riding it into a china shop, and <laughs> this is in Penzance. Yeah, and one the year when it says Mrs. Treweek's books, and then there's a list. Oh, okay, so you can find out what Mrs. Treweek is. What she reading. had chosen yes. as president to yes. circulate oh, around the ladies, so Mariah and, her and they were friends. only allowed to have the books for four days, yes. so they must have gobbled them up. Absolutely, and there were lots of periodicals in there, yes. there were lots of tracts, yes. with the magazines, there were, but. In among as well were very sort of serious books about history and religious books and travel books, an awful lot of travel books. So this was doing the rounds and Mariah would have been a member. So it's very interesting to get that insight into what she was reading mm. before mm -hmm. she went even to Yorkshire. And it really rounds around as a person. It really does because it, it gives you a sense of that contemporary thinking amongst women of her class mm -hmm. and her age. Mm -hmm. A lot of those books were by women. A lot of those books I'd never heard of and have just faded into obscurity, mm. but they were bestsellers. They were the must-read then, you know, and someone will say to you now, I oh, should read this, should read that. Fascinating. So Sharon, what really sparked your interest in, in the Brontes? How, how did you pick up the Brontes as something that you really, really wanted to research, and particularly Mariah Bronte? Well, it's quite an interesting journey, really. I mean, I was born and brought up in Bradford, like the Bronte sisters themselves, but... The Brontes were never part of my curriculum. I did English to A-level, never studied the Brontes. I mean, it's much different now, I think. But I was made to read Jane Austen, which I can honestly say I didn't enjoy. 
<laughs> no, fair enough. Neither did I first no. time. And it took one special teacher yeah. to really bring it out and show me what I'd been yes. missing. No, I would I would t bring a different eye to it now. Mm. But, and then I became a reporter, journalist mm -hmm. on the local paper that covered Haworth. So I would cover all the shenanigans in Bronteland. There was always, you know, something yes. kicking off or <laughs> planning applications or some affront to the memory, you know. But always felt that town and gown feeling, really. Mm. I was very much a town. Mm -hmm. Then left Yorkshire to work around the country and ended up in London, like you often do as a journalist. And then it was only going back to Yorkshire, really, as a... But part, part of that journey was working in the West Country, mm. where I grew to love the West Country, actually. So I was there in my late 20s. When Mariah was in her late 20s, she was making that reverse journey, wasn't she? From right. the West Country yes, to the West Riding. And you were doing the other way around. And at the time, I didn't know that Mrs Bronte, such celebrities at home, was actually a Cornish woman. I didn't know that then either. Mm. So it was only as a writer and a wife and a mother going back to Yorkshire. That I went on a walking tour with my cousins that I grew up with. A cousin and a friend I grew up with. And absolutely, we were so outraged that we had not... It was so brilliant, and it brought alive these amazing life stories. How would we not know that? I, I knew the Bronte Burger sketch by Victoria Wood. I, <laughs> I could spot Larry Olivier's Heathcliff on a poster, but I certainly hadn't... And then I became preoccupied by Mrs Bronte. Mm. Totally eclipsed well, by the genius yes, of her children. Yes, such an absence. Yeah. Yes, and, you know, Patrick is there larger than life. Absolutely. Very long-lived... Very, you know, the the patriarch yeah. and no Mrs Bronte. Where was it and why did he never remarry and she was. So in a way I always call this the prequel, the mm -hmm. before they were famous Brontes. Mm -hmm. Because without Mariah, when a bit of get up and go and gumption and setting off to Yorkshire and meeting Patrick, who she loved, there'd be no Brontes, would there? Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a delight to talk to you. Um, now was. we've pushed the door open on Mariah Bronte. Um, we're not going to close it. It's going to remain open. The, the, door. Door. the, door. the door. The door. The door. The door. You come to the end of our podcast. My name is Lena Augustenson and I'm the producer. And I am Naomi Clifford, history writer. All details of this episode are on our website, thedoorpodcast.com. You can also follow us on social media, on Facebook. On Twitter, we are at The Door Podcast. You can subscribe to us as well, and uh, on any of the platforms that we're on, just follow the links. You can also sign up for a newsletter on our website, which will tell you when the next episode drops. And yeah, I think that's it. That is it, yes. yes.